tell me about your favorite iguanas that you saw in Puerto Rico. Well, yeah, you know, like you go on a holiday to the Caribbean, which is not something that I am used to doing uh, as a man who doesn't easily take holidays. And rather than having like mice and rats running and running around like the hotels I'm used to staying in, uh, the hotel, one of the hotels we were in for my honeymoon had had iguanas, which is very exciting. Um, they're also weirdly like in Puerto Rico where we were, there was a sort of spate of wild or like, you know, feral horses. Like again, where I live, you know, there's rats and foxes and, and Puerto Rico has horses. <laughs> so yeah, it was lovely. And I'm very sad to notice, Tom, that while I've been away on holiday, uh, you've replaced me. I've been replaced in your affections. Not, not, not in my affections, but just as a, a temporary co-hosting duties. You know, the, the show must go on. That's, that's how it starts, though, Tom. That's how it starts. Hey, look, if there's one thing that I'm able to talk about, it's business. And the other thing is that I don't know anything about history and can't read. So, you know, it that uh, that Freak Shows episode that is <laughs> uh, on the Patreon uh, took me a long time to write, but... Well, thank, thank you for keeping it and keeping the podcast in good hands while I've been well been laying on a beach. Send, send me good hands. Yeah, you kept posting your feet on Instagram for free, Matt. Do you know people will pay money to see those? <laughs> that real Patreon content. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're pivoting into a foot podcast. I mean, we? I remember the first time I ever met you in person. It was like screaming hot in the summer, and you were like, "I don't wear shorts because I don't like my legs." Yeah, I wore. Um, I took four suits on holiday with me to the Caribbean. <laughs> the only man who will wear a suit to the beach. But I, I do, I, if any of you fo- follow us on our social media, which you should, uh, we've been doing some interesting stuff on Instagram. I was, did a little mini documentary about Friday the 13th last week. I got two new tattoos once again from Lee at Hidden Hands in Kentish Town and made like a little video about my journey. But uh, I got a, can you see it? Little dagger. Oh, lovely. I- that's I got nice just like banger. a little dagger as a space filler, and then um, I'm I'm wearing. Uh, shout out to my friend Shocks from Boston. The fuck the NSC one three one, which is the neo Nazi skinhead hardcore group uh, in the US, and one three one is their branch in Boston. So fuck NSC one three one. But I got this uh, <laughs> eagle on my shoulder as well. Nice tough guy tattoos. Uh, do you know what the eagle took about two hours to do? And then I took a break, two, maybe three hours. And then that little dagger, because it went over the elbow joint, was excruciating. Yeah. No, I'm, uh, can't, I'm too old for this stuff now. You still have to get your back done, Matt. I know. I'm lo- not looking Just forward to it. Just go under general anesthetic. You'll get it oh, done. Oh, one thing, actually. Well, I will say... Oh, God, don't start. Not that again. Um, before we start, I also have to say, one of the, while I was on holiday, uh, it was interesting. You know, we talked before Christmas about tattoo ink and tattoo ink history. Um in which actually we talked a bit about Lyle, actually, briefly, um, who we're talking about today. But I met, funnily enough, just in a restaurant in Puerto Rico, the, a guy who is a magical consultant for a big name, I won't name who it is, but a big name, a very, very famous magician. And he was, he'd been in New York talking to Bang Bang about this new like disappearing ink stuff that we talked about. Um, so that may be coming to a actual magic performance sometime near you, which I thought was a nice coincidence. Ooh, interesting, interesting. But... You mentioned the crux of this episode as well. We are talking about the one and only, the legend, Mr. Lyle Tuttle, and we are joined by a fantastic guest as well. Matt, would you like to introduce our guest? I would. I, look, I'm so happy today. When we started the podcast, um, this person was top of my list um, of people I wanted to chat to. And I'm really grateful we finally find time to sit down with Danielle. Danielle um, uh, Boyardi, 
apparently not related to the Chef Boyardee uh, kitchen brand, at least not yet. <laughs> Maybe that's coming in the future, Danielle. Um, who is the curator and kind of guardian of the Lyle Tuttle collection. Um, as we'll talk about, Lyle was really like one, probably, you know, more than anyone um, responsible for kind of guarding a huge amount of tattoo history, educating generations of people, taking tattooing from a, you know, um, from a, its place kind of pre-World War II into like the modern era. He's as responsible as anyone for what tattooing looks like today. And um, yeah, so we're really, really happy to have you here, Danielle. And thanks for, thanks for talking to us. Nice to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, could you like start off by just telling us, you know, like a bit about yourself? Like what's your, what's your story before we get on to the stories that you're now kind of responsible for looking after? Sure. Um, you know, I had a background in fine arts restoration, actually gilding restoration um, in college, languages, uh, went to Italy, studied abroad, and I fell into doing gilding restoration like in the mid to late 90s in Italy, came back to the U.S. and I had a career working for, you know, certainly the U.S. top museums um, and international museums, private clients, Sotheby's, all of that. Uh, basically restoring gilded works of art and fine furniture. And that career after probably a 16, 17 years or so brought me to San Francisco. And it was sort of a, I always call it a beautiful destiny. And you know, I feel that I was always destined to meet Lyle, destined to work with Lyle. Um, you know, he would call it like cosmic man. That's actually what he said, you know. And people that know me, people that, you know, were very close with Lyle, you know, they came to know this story and they thought, wow, like God, like what kind of universe brought the two of you, you two together? You know, he was just the ultimate rock star ambassador for tattooing. He had been everywhere. You could name like the most obscure city at any point of the globe. And he could say, oh, yeah, I was there in 69 or, you know, yeah, I know this guy who's got a shop over there and he's got a pet pig. You know, he um he was, uh, he was something else. And so as far as how I started working with Lyle, you know, we were neighbors and I had done a massive $5 million conservation and restoration of late, uh, late 1780s gilded French molding, very posh stuff for the Legion of Honor Museum in San Francisco. And I had gone by Lyle's shop, which at the time was not an open functioning shop. And um, we just wondered, who is Lyle Tuttle? I thought he was like a clothing designer or something. <laughs> and, you know, it, his, his name, his signage, his signature always had such gravitas for me that it always was like held curiosity. And then in a very destined way, I was looking for a place to do uh, a project, a table, a console table that was you know, $100,000 of carving by brilliant British and American wood carvers, I'll, I'll add. And uh, Lyle was just uh, in the shop getting ready to reopen. I guess this was sometime around 2000, summer of 2013. And he was in there doodling. And I, my dad was visiting from New York. And, you know, I said, Dad, you know, I think that's him in there. And so I was leaning against the tree and he came outside and he said, you know, are you holding my tree up or is, you know, or, or, or is it holding you up kind of thing? And I said, you know, I, I'm looking for Lyle Tuttle. And he said, I'm Lyle Tuttle. And we started a conversation. I told him about my craft. 
uh, we got into his signage, the Libra sign. And, you know, that was sort of our icebreaker and our point of first point of common interest. And I said, I'm a Libra. And, you know, we, we shared our birthdays. And, you know, I said, well, I'm born October 17th, 1971. And he was born October 7th, 1931. And I think most people that hear the numbers, if you're into that kind of cosmic juju, they go, whoa, okay, you guys were just going to meet and going to work together. And um, I did a beautiful project in his building. We became besties. I could listen to him talk for hours. And we just became super close. You know, we called each other Buddy Bear. We were like, you know, the modern term would be bestie. Um, he had pneumonia. I would go to his house up in Ukiah, hang out, try to look after him, just be a friend. Right. And, you know, he had certainly been that to me. He offered me a space in his building, um, you know, for free. And on exchange, I was going to do some gilding in his tattoo shop. And then he changed his mind on that. Long story short, um, probably about a year and a half into us knowing each other, you know, he started introducing me to his collection. And, you know, then I got to just, uh, my mind was blown, you know, my mind was blown. And um, he invited me to start traveling with him, working with the collection. Um, I was certainly ready for some career change and, you know, really just started as a passion project working with him because he was a fountain of information. And I, it just, it just completely, he overwhelmed my life, you know, in the most positive <laughs> way. So that's the intro, That feels guys. like such a... That feels like such a San Francisco story, you know. Right. I, weirdly, I've ne I've never been I've never been San Francisco. Partly because I think like it exists in my imagination as a British guy, you know, growing up in London, and I was uh, California in general. I suppose I was reading, you know, modern primitives in like you know nineteen ninety four, ninety five. When I was fourteen, fifteen years old, and mm -hmm. like Lyle and Bert Grimm, who who Lyle worked with, and 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 Ed Hardy, and that kind of California post war even pre-war, I suppose, tattoo scene just is such a huge part of like the imaginary that built the modern tattoo world, I suppose. And it's it's really beautiful to hear that story of you two coming together because it, it feels very coherent and very, as you said, like kind of almost like it was meant to be. Yeah, I always felt that way. You know, there was an awful lot of magic, you know, and San Francisco, I think, was always a tremendously open, liberal, creative city. There's a lot of creative energy there. And I would always say to people, you know, God, San Francisco, when I took great leaps at, I was already like 40 or 41 years old when I went out there. And, you know, I had lost my grandmother. She was 100 years old. I was super close to her. And I just really like followed my bliss to go out and work on a project that, you know, it just became this completely life-changing thing. So, you know, like, just follow your bliss, people. Follow your destiny. You know, if you feel like a pull to go and just have a change, it doesn't really matter if you're 27 or 47 or 67, you know. Um, you know, Lyle, um, you know, meeting Lyle was really life-changing. We He was also, you know, he was such a fascinating person outside of all of his tremendous wealth of tattoo knowledge. And, you know, anybody that would think, oh, I met Lyle at this convention or that collect, you know, convention and, you know, the tequila grapefruit, you know, that was Lyle, but that was only a part of who he was as a traveler and a historian and a Renaissance man and all of it. So um, I'm sure you'll ask me about that and, and a lot more stuff today, yeah. which I'm looking forward were to sharing. You, were you tattooed? Were you interested in tattoos when you met him or was that 
Was that something that another thing that you, you sort of had to get your head around? This um, is going to blow your mind. I had no tattoos when I met Lyle. Yeah. None. And you know what he said to me? And he was sort of famous for this. And, you know, he would say, you know, oh, you know, don't get one. Stay unique. God, you know, tattoos <laughs> used to be tattoos used to be filled with mystery and magic. And they were for proven chosen warriors. And, you know, God, you know, they were really something back in the day. And God, you know, he'd say all of these pretty little girls now tattoo in their necks and their faces. <laughs> and, and I say to them, why are you going to go and fuck yourself up like that? You know? And so he, um, he had a certain aesthetic, honestly, you know, um, as far as being a gentleman tattooer, he did, he never wanted yeah. and did not believe in tattooing, you know, below the wrist and above the neck. Yeah. And of course, he had none, in, none, none, no public tattoos himself, did he? Yeah. And there was a lot of history and reason behind that because he had yeah. known yeah. so many tattooers, you know, including the likes of Ralph Johnstone, who he tattooed with and worked with on the Pike that, you know, they, they, as much mystery and legend as they sort of carried on their tattooed bodysuits, there also was, you know, the reality of being a heavily tattooed person in a public forum and that that meant that people were going to stare at you and, you know, that, that they, they would feel a certain kind of shame and like, you know, the, the freak vibe because people were not used to seeing um, people tattooed unless you were, you know, in the circus, some type of a freak or, you know, a lady of the night or, you know, a person that really was living on the fringes of society. So um, back to San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco, you know, and Lyle's San Francisco, uh, that of certainly the 60s and the 70s, you know, was a place of a lot of uh, social change, civil rights change. Um, yeah, you know, the, the and birth of the birth of like really modern civil rights movements. Of, yes. Of feminism. I think I was, I was reading in his New York times, uh, obituary, which you contributed to that, that quote from him, where he sort of says that women's liberation is, was responsible for the growth of tattooing. Cause he said like, you know, at the end of the sixties, beginning of the seventies, he was tattooing almost exclusively women. And he, he credited that San Francisco energy of, of queerness and also of, of women's liberation. And I guess of, the civil rights movement uh, for for uh, African Americans as well in the sixties, which also has a, had a big anchor point on the West Coast, as being part of that big change that he was sort of found himself at the middle of, in the middle of, you know. A absolutely, I mean, he, you know, he joked and he would say, you know, gosh, kid, you know, I was hot, you know, God, you just can't imagine how hot I used to be, <laughs> you know, and I, would, hot. and I would and I would laugh and I'd say, God, Lyle, you know, like he was so funny. And, you know, he'd say, I was, I was in more panty lines than, than got, than gynecologists. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he was kind of humble about his tattoo artistic ability. It is certainly in the, in the last 15, 20 years, right. Where you have so many artists that are doing these amazing, like super photorealism tattoos and, and all of that, because tattooing as a practice never used to be that. It never used to include that, right? And it's a constantly changing art form. But Lyle actually always said, you know, he didn't talk about tattooing as an art form. He believed that tattooing was a practice more than an art form. And, um, you know, I, I don't know where I was going with that tangent, but... Um, um, well, there's that great... There, there's a... Sorry, Tom. There's that great... There's a great um, interview with him in that Frisco tattoo documentary that came out in the nineties where 
it's interesting you use that word humility because I think that's really how he comes across, particularly in that kind of latter part of his career where he's clearly like very, he feels, it seems to be uh, very privileged to have been a tattoo artist. And I know from talking to other guys of his generation that most of them who are still in the in the game or they're, they're about feel that same thing, that they understand it's a privilege and understand, you know, the, the fact they got to travel and they got to have such profound impacts on people's lives and change culture in the ways that they did. And I think, yeah, Humility is a really nice way of explaining that. I mean, it's interesting as well because I guess for a part of his career, so we talked about this before um, uh, before we came onto the interview, but Lyle did have briefly have a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a, a showman, a bit of a, a braggart, a bit of a you know a bit of a kind of performer. And I wonder if you think that was well earned or not, or whether that was kind of sour grapes from other people because it, it seems to me that you know. I'm very grateful as a tattoo historian for the tattooers that did speak to newspapers because they're the ones that we can find out about, you know, people like Bert and Lau Hardy and, and, and Armand Dietzel and Sammy Stewart and all those, all the names, most of the names that we know of actually George Burchett, actually, who I think we'll come on to in a bit as well. Uh, Les Scuse, all of those guys that we know about are the guys that went and spoke to journalists and, and, and span tales and told lies and spread their own myths and you know i i'm very grateful to lyle for for his showmanship actually um as a, i i as am too because he fan. you know i think of him as always being sort of part carney you know and he would say you know that he wanted to you know lyle was an only child so if we go to early early lyle he's an only child he, he was a child of parents that moved from iowa to San Francisco and actually to Northern California, just north of San Francisco during the Great Depression, you know? And so he was like a rogue. And, and he, I think, as a very young person, had a lot of wanderlust and spirit. And, you know, he, he famously talks about his first tattoo and in going into San Francisco in 1946 when there were all these you know, the, the, the sailors were returning from World War II and that it was just this tremendous sort of era of change and walking into Duke Kaufman's shop in San Francisco and, you know, and just being like, I got to get a tattoo, you know, and then just, you know, getting this, this heart with mother tattoo and how that sort of brought him into, um, you know, manhood and him going home thinking his mother was going to be like ashamed of it of him or mad at him. And she, you know, she was like, thought it was great. She was like, it's fine. You know, if, it's, if that's what you want to do. And, you know, he would say, God, you know, I would, I'm going to start a club, you know, it's going to be called. Okay. You know, for the only, the only kid. And he would say, you know, when, when they, when, when, when they popped me out, they knew they didn't need no backup. <laughs> and so he, he was always, he was always a person that had, I think really like genetically a hunger for adventure and for showmanship. You know, there was the shy part of Lyle too, but um, he loved sharing information. He loved to share knowledge. Um, yeah. So I, I hope that answers the question about his. his and yeah. Um, I, ju I just wanted to ask as well for those who might not be familiar, you touched on his early childhood. Can you talk a little bit about, the start of his career and his journey throughout, you know, the 60s and 70s? Sure. So, you know, Lyle was tattooed first 1946, although he would tell me stories of, you know, actually experimenting with tattoos, um, like in school where he would like 
use matchsticks and like burn little tattoos on his buddies. And he would say, oh, you know, there used to be like an acid that they would use if you had a, a skin infection called imbitago. And so he was, you know, experimenting with this imbitago acid, making little marks on his, you know, brave friends at like 11 and 12 years old. And, um, you know, then he, he gets his first tattoo and then he's sort of forever changed when he goes back to Ukiah. And, um, you know, one of his earliest sort of, you know, the, we talk about the destiny of how Lyle came into tattooing. He went to a mechanic in Ukiah whose last name was Eddie. And he turned out to be the brother of the very famous Pop Eddie of San Francisco. And at the time, Pop Eddie and Duke Kaufman were like, you know, two of pretty much the only guys that were tattooing in San Francisco. And through meeting Pop Eddie's brother in Ukiah, that was how he had this sort of in with Pop Eddie, who then got him his first tattoo equipment. And then we fast forward to like, you know, 1948, 49, he starts tattooing. First, he was tattooing in Ukiah. Then he was tattooing in San Francisco. Then in 1951, he went to the Korean War. So he had, you know, a little bit of a break. He was barely 20 years old. As soon as he came back in 53 or so, um, he was working again, like tattooing in San Francisco and Oakland and um, had a little more history with Duke Kaufman. And, um, you know, then by, we'll call it 1956 and 57, he's sort of like hungering for more. And that was how he, uh, at sort of Duke Kaufman's, not insistence, but Duke would talk about Burke Grimm and the great Burke Grimm. And that was how Lyle went down to the Pike and met Burke Grimm and started getting tattooed by him. And then soon after started working with him. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month. And you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As. And you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Sanoderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Sanoderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Sanoderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Sanoderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Sanoderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second-skin aftercare bandages. 
Sonoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saladerm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saladerm products or for more information. And he he really, I guess, like the kind of, again, sort of standard public story that gets told about him is him tattooing people like Janis Joplin in particular. So that that often gets sort of held up as a really kind of interesting pivotal moment. And then he was in Rolling Stone magazine, right, in like 71 or there and thereabouts. And I mean, he's he's I, I guess may have the have the claim of at least kind of one of or if not the first kind of celebrity tattoo artist of of that era right so no no go ahead i was just going to say with regards to his relationship you know to janice joplin you know at the time we'll say between 1960 and 1989 lyle had his uber super famous seventh street shop right in san francisco and you know because he looked the part, you know, he was just being himself, you know, he wasn't looking to get likes or follows on an Instagram page. Lyle was being himself. Lyle was a Renaissance man. Lyle was a super creative person. He was a very social person. And, you know, Janis Joplin then like came into his life through actually, you know, the, the Rolling Stone article, um, You know, he knew somebody that basically wrote for Rolling Stone magazine. And then um, I'm trying to think of like the other details of that. He, you know, he was photographed by Annie Leibovitz, I guess, in like 1972, just after that. But, you know, with regards to the Janis Joplin thing, you know, she met him at some party or something. And there's a very famous- again old San Francisco, you know. Oh like- yeah, yep. And you know, um, she at the time did. This was probably like in the last year or so of her life. She did a super famous that you can find online. It's uh, an interview with Dick Cavett, and she talks about Lyle and getting tattooed by Lyle and meeting him and all these stars and God, you know, you should see him and he's just gorgeous and. So, uh, you know, she went in and and got um, two tattoos by Lyle and, you know, the Rolling Stone thing that sort of came again. This was like just a destined thing. I believe the writer of that article was Amy Hill and um, she's still living up in Northern California somewhere. We actually tracked her down, Lyle and I, about two years before he passed just to kind of. Yeah. And that was sort of where that, you know, that was sort of the wave of the media. Right. And, um, yeah. you know, Rolling Stone at the time, I mean, he was like a rock star, you know, to be on the cover. And, you know, he knew all these super famous musicians, you know, Freddie King, Albert King, the Allman Brothers, you know. Um, and then soon after the early 70s, we'll say 71, 72, then he had the kind of success that he, you know, brought him down to have a, a shop in Hollywood. And so then again, more kind of of this Hollywood vibe, always rooted in San Francisco and, you know, just being a country boy in Northern California. But yeah, um, you know, it it was very unheard of, I think, at the time for somebody to um, 
that was certainly in the tattooing practice to be out there kind of sharing themselves. But, you know, he was like, he was happy to have the admiration and, and the attention and the accolades. And, but he was still very much a working tattoo artist, you know? Yeah, well, that's that's what I wanted to say again, because obviously I only have this, you know, I, as I said to you um, uh, again over messaging, like I, I was, um, he was meant to be coming to England the week before he, the week after he, he ended up sadly passing away um, because he'd been for decades in contact with and had a quite intimate collection with tattooing in the UK. And it's really clear that as famous as he was and as kind of, you know, photogenic and as kind of glamorous as his you know public persona was, he was a tattoo guy. Like he cared about tattooing in a very genuine way. Um, I want to move on in a second to talk about tattoo history because clearly, you know, he he had a real deep abiding love for the history of the craft as much as its present and future. And yeah, like it, it's interesting that you say that about about being a working tattooer because that is again the kind of things that I've heard from people that knew him over the years and seeing where he pops up in the historical record of people that he knew and worked with it's really clear that as you know he could have probably sat in his shop in in hollywood and tattooed all day every day and 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 never had to move a mile but he was clearly interested in meeting other tattoo artists in in corresponding and collecting and learning and and that kind of attitude to life i find very inspiring and and it's not something that um i think interestingly it's in a lot of tattooers i think i've mentioned this on the podcast before so a lot of tattooers who make it to that age and still, even if they're not still working, care about tattooing. People that are still around the tattoo industry in their, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s have all of them that I know at least have that attitude of like excitement and interest. And, you know, they they have their kind of grumpy moments and their kind of cynical days. But at the, underneath it all, there's this real genuine love for tattooing and not just tattooing tattooing is kind of place in the world and from, from hearing you talk about lyle daniel that seems to be something that came across from him even in those later years of his life when he wasn't tattooing every day yeah i mean he he had basically professionally so stopped tattooing probably by around like 1992 but you know and that was sort of like you know the years in which tattooing was just you know kind of moving forward and becoming so much more of a popularized, um, you know, practice. And it was that much more socially acceptable, certainly by the nineties. And then, you know, you have like the convention circuits are starting, but Lyle, even, you know, through the seventies and eighties, you know, he had his artistic fulfillment in a lot of different areas being, you know, a top tattoo machine builder, being a metal smith, um, he was super handy. I mean, he would just build things like a year before he died. He was out in the backyard, like carving a stump out of the ground. And it was like 96 degrees out there. I mean, you know, he had this type of like, you know, I'll do it myself mentality. I'll go there myself. You know, he traveled back to Burt Grimm just for a minute. He traveled to Alaska and he was basically the first traveling tattoo artist in Alaska in 1957 before the United, before the, you know, before it was even a state, he was up in Alaska and, you know, he was the definition of Maverick and he also loved really, and he had a lot to do with, um, modernizing tattooing practices as far as sterilization. And, you know, he taught a lot of tattoo artists in seminars that he would hold um, you know, and th- that was how a lot of people that 
weren't tattoo artists actually came into tattooing even you know, as a sort of later in life career, I know a lot of characters that were like in their thirties met Lyle were interested in tattooing and he just like turned them on to becoming tattoo machine builders and then tattoo artists. And, um, you know, even at the very end there, that was really a couple of heartbreaking weeks. I mean, um, finding out, you know, how sick Lyle was and having to cancel that trip to go to England because, you know, I, uh, personally speaking, you know, Lyle introduced me in being so close with him and traveling with him. He introduced me to so many amazing characters. And, you know, um, I was really, we were both really disappointed that we, you know, we're obviously not going to be able to make that trip because he was, you know, he was in hospice care. It was a miracle to even get him home, you know, to, to pass in his childhood home. And, but, um, yeah. To and I did, um, I did speak to some people, you know, in the years before that hap were happening, who were like, I c like they they they'd met Lyle at a convention, and he was still, you know, occasionally tattooing his signature on people, fairly yeah. shakily handed by that point. But yep. people were like, I can't believe that guy's still alive. <laughs> like, I know, like he was he was uh, by all accounts this kind and and um uh, my friend and uh, collaborator occasionally Anna Freeman and him went to Antarctica together yep. where he was the first tattooer to tattoo on every continent including Antarctica they yep. in a he was Russian so he was so proud to say that there. and you know do that trip with her and you know I mean he was already at the time I guess he was like 81 or 82 years old something yeah. like that but, yeah. but 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 everyone was like as you said earlier on like he was still chatting away and like this life of the party center of attention loud opinionated you oh, know yeah. fun irascible like that was the kind of storytelling about that i heard from him yeah uh, about him even even in that you know those those days when clearly he was getting older and more frail yeah you, you know you it was funny you asked me earlier oh well, well were you tattooed you know i don't know how i made it through you know i'm born in 71 <laughs> and you know I, I can remember my sister getting her first tattoo and you know i was curious about it but i always had a sort of fear factor about it too not that it was going to hurt but I just thought, oh gosh, you know, like what is going to be a tattoo that's going to mean so much to me? And, you know, yeah. I, it's, it's coming now to me to, to share that Lyle gave me my first tattoo and, um, it's just a tiny little Libra sign. You can probably barely even see oh, it there, great. but, um, you know, we were both Libras and that seemed to be like, you know, just a good kind of, uh, you know, I didn't know how I felt about having his signature, although so many people were so psyched to have his signature. Yeah. So I have, I have two. I think it's pretty, it's pretty different if you're like seeing him every day and living, like working closely with him. To well, have a you know what it was? If you're just it, it was funny. Collector. You know, I, I was with my mom and my mom got her first tattoo and I got my first tattoo. Not hers wasn't by Lyle. Um, but you know, I, I sat there with Lyle and I thought, you know, God, I mean, if, if I was working with, uh, you know, a painter, you know, and the painter wanted to paint me or if, if I could have that kind of experience, like this is Lyle's practice. I didn't get the tattoo so much because it was going to be, oh, I have a, you know, a tattoo by the great Lyle Tuttle. It was just that I spent every day with Lyle for, you know, quite a lot of years there. And, you know, I thought, God, you know, what, what's the matter with me? You know, like I didn't, I'm not a virgin. I have my ears pierced, you know, life changes, your body <laughs> changes, get the damn tattoo. And, uh, you know, the first uh, one's always the hardest one, Danielle. Well, you know what it was too. That was, it was such a beautiful day. And, you know, he tattooed me, my mom had her mermaid tattoo on her leg and the three of us, he took us over to this beautiful historical place, 
um, which, you know, he loved to visit called the, the Cliff House, which was on the ocean uh, in San Francisco. And we talked about the history there of the Sutro Baths and God, he could tell you everything about everything, but especially San Francisco history. And God, it was a super memorable day. And then um, I have Amazing. another tattoo he did when I did the 70th retrospective for him. And so I wear them very proudly. And I'll also tell you that, you know, he gave me my first tattoo and I gave him his last. And that's uh, wow. not, not anything that a lot of people know, but it's sort of, you know, um, it was a, it, it was really full circle thing for us. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks, um, man. I, wa I want to maybe like, I mean, I could talk to you all day, honestly. Um, yeah. But I guess real we should in, talk about the collection. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we'll talk again. We'll have you back on. Sure. Um, I, wanna, I, I guess I want to talk about the collection now, really, because uh, as I said, you know, um, Lyle, um, Lyle started uh, a magazine called Tattoo Historian, you know, yeah. uh, back in the 70s. He was one of, you know, the first people um, who really realized that, pe that tattooing was going to be of interest to people. And if, if he didn't look after it, no one would. Um, he saved... For example, the George Burchett collection yeah. um, from England. I don't quite know this. I mean, I don't know if you want to, if you know, or even want to tell me the story of how that happened. But I know, and I'll it, tell you. Well, I'll you, tell you. Well, yeah, well, this. I'll tell you bits. So he of it. saved that. Yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me about that. Because and, and um, how? Well, you know, Lyle. I think as a creative person, you know, he had a love for um, a lot of things. I I want to be careful not to call him a hoarder. Um, although he dabbled. <laughs> no, he, collector. There's a, a there's there's a type. I know he, them well. Yeah, but but the, you know, the collector that became Lyle actually started when he got his first tattoo. And we were able to about a year before he passed, I said, Lyle, you know, we're we're looking through his business cards, the business cards being one of his favorite parts of his collection. And boy, did he have a lot of amazing but does he have a lot of amazing business cards? We were able to find the first business card from Duke Kaufman from the day he got his first tattoo. And he always sort of credits that day as being the day that he just started being obsessed with collecting business cards, collecting paper, uh, collecting machines. Um, and so the mentality, you know, he was not an eBay collector, which a lot of collectors today, that's what they got. You know, Lyle became a collector because he knew everybody in the tattoo world. And so he was traveling the world, his, co his collecting as far as really like skyrocketing, uh, you know, that happened in 1974 where he, you know, he had, I think enough financial success through the tattooing shop and all that, that he went on what was, I think a six or a seven week trip through Europe. And he visited something like 12 or 14, you know, different countries. And, you know, I know the dollar figure that he spent on that trip. It's not a lot of money in today's standards, but it was a lot of money in those in those days. And he had been in contact with George's son, Leslie Burchett. And that, you know, there was a lot of respect there to the point that, you know, Lyle had set up that he was going to meet Leslie and that he was going to buy the collection from him. And that actually happened um, something like a week or two before the shop was demolished. And, you know, the rest yeah, of the shop was right at that end. Yeah. Yep. I mean, the, the story that, that, that I heard was was literally sort of the collection was sort of saved from the 
from the the dumpster, as you say in the US, saved from a skip. Like that was sort of that's the that's the story that 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 is told in the UK that that Lyle literally saw this stuff and no one else was really interested in it and he you know he 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 saw it would be it was beautiful and important and 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 saved it from as he said from the rubble. I mean, it's really interesting. Like I, I I've worked a lot with a the archive of a tattooer called Jessie Knight, who was like the first important female tattoo artist, and she. She retired from tattooing in the early 19, maybe mid 1960s. And at that point, all of her stuff, people were interested in it. Ron Ackers, who was also a correspondent of Lyle's, like, yeah, they were friends. She had this great collection. But her collection, basically, no one really cared about it. And it went, it, it went into storage. And her family, when, when we discovered it and put it on display, a few years ago it was all still pretty much intact as a collection because she'd sort of retired just before that 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 kind of um you know moment where people started to realize that tattoo history was important and i think probably the lyle's collection of of burchett stuff is a real for me a, like a watershed in the historiography of tattoo collecting because after that after lyle saw that value of that collection i think he 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 through his publications and through his you know his his attitude to, to talking about all the things he knew and had learned um, him and ed hardy actually as well i think i should credit ed too but 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 those two i think probably really amongst the first people to realize that tattoo history was important and interesting and as you said traveling going making those connections and it was it wasn't just a kind of they weren't doing it to make money or to or to to do anything other than as you said collect stuff that they thought was beautiful and interesting and important right yeah well i mean you know i did quite a lot of like videography with lyle just in moments where you know, personally speaking, you're trying to balance that as much as Lyle could be a ham and love to have his time on camera. He also really liked to just shut the noise off. You know, he loved to sit in his workshop in Ukiah and and tinker, as he called it. You know, um, back also to your point on, you know, tattoo art history, Lyle called, you know, uh, tattoo history, the art that art history forgot in a way. 100%. And, yep. you know, something that Lyle and I shared so much is uh, about is like the, you know, the things that are revealed, the social trends through Tattoo Flash and the importance also of like, you know, the history that can be told through, you know, for example, uh, you know, m- military tattoos and military tattooing and all of those sort of the, the inspirations and the history behind that. And, you know, we, we did a book, the first book I did actually after Lyle passed was called Uncommon Valor. And it was about that. Thank you. Thanks. Um, you know, that was super inspiring for me to do because it, it fused a lot of the things that mattered to me even before I met and knew Lyle and worked with Lyle because my dad is a world war II uh, historian. And so as a kid, you know, I would grew up watching these black and white movies, you know, of everything going on in World War II. You'd watch them on a weekend. And, you know, that period of time always held a lot of fascination for me. And then enter working with Lyle. And so much of his collection, uh, you know, is about not just artists, but so much tattoo flash and individual artist collections that were tattooing through World War II. And, um, you know, there was just a lot of visual information there. There was a lot of intimate social information there. And, you know, so much of the experience, you know, of being 
you know, a, a kid basically going to war and either getting a tattoo that was going to be, you know, a sweetheart tattoo or a pinup tattoo, um, you know, tattoos for your military branch of service that were going to sort of bolster you as you went into battle and something to kind of keep you company while you hoped that you could just make it home alive, you know? Um, it, for me, it was like, um, there was so much of that to be sort of shared and protected through Lyle's collection that, I mean, you know, that, that's where. Yeah. The and I think, I, I think this is again, you know, something that I try and do still, but Lyle, you know, I walk very stumbling in Lyle's shadow or the ground that he paved for, for me and others like me, because it's exactly that. Look, tattoo history is beautiful for the, the intimate histories of tattooing as a kind of insular practice. But as you said, it's this, it's this set of histories that tells a story which otherwise isn't accessible through or hasn't been very accessible through museums and through standard art histories. But these kind of intimate, I, I love that phrase, visual information, because, yeah, that Lyle realized that tattoo history was bigger than just tattooing, actually. Like, I think that's something that comes across very clearly in his writing and in his collecting, that he understood that this wasn't just about cool tattoos, although that's a big part of it. Um, it's about it's about what tattooing tells us about 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 people right i i i, I always sort of say you know tattooing is like or, or certainly certainly that period of tattooing is like things you love things you hate things you want to fuck <laughs> basically like that's <laughs> that's that, great and maybe that Let right and maybe that last one is also a in the other two like this is the this, that's the totality of tattoo if, flash if, if lyle were alive <laughs> today he would steal that from you he would credit you but he would say that all the time <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh, how do, how how um so after Lyle, I mean you you were managing the collection for a long time before Lyle died but how, what's 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 it like if that's not too banal a question being in charge of this and managing this collection because it's enormous from what I understand and presumably very unwieldy like no, I guess it's not cataloged in any kind of standard way that we might recognize as as a museum catalog how 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 do you kind of approach that practically and emotionally? Well, the truth is, you know, <laughs> what some people don't really understand, and maybe you know, Lyle would talk a, a big game about the tattoo museum that was in San Francisco. There was not technically an open public visitor space that was a tattoo museum since technically 1989, when Lyle very sadly had to shut his Seventh Street shop because of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, you know, then Lyle had a component of what he was sharing as tattoo history um, in his uh, the shop that he had after the Seventh Street shop on Columbus Avenue, but it really never was organized. And so, you know, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of change, um, you know, in the business in what had to be become a priority because you know the collection was kept in Ukiah. Um, frankly, mostly in Lyle's he, he house. Was, he was at one point, he was trying to sell it or donate it, wasn't he, for a long time he, as well? Yeah, and he, couldn't quite find he the dabbled right in looking to... into, you know, there there was something that was sort of potentially in the works about a year before I was working with Lyle and then one year after I started working with Lyle. And the truth is that, you know, he he sort of didn't feel a trusted sense of, well, what's going to happen if I you know, sell my collection to a museum. And, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of, you know, working in museum culture, I can tell you this, there's a lot of great work that happens in museums. There's a lot of not so great work that happens in museums. And plenty of museums, including places like the Smithsonian, 
You know, they will boast all the things they own, all the storage centers they have. And, you know, Lyle in the end said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be damned if I'm going to sell my collection for 20% what it's worth to then have a museum, you know, a person who knows nothing about tattoo history, you know, boast to me that they're going to take my collection and put it in their, you know, off campus housing. He said, you know, uh, you know, he, he wanted, you know, he wanted the collection to be researched and studied and, you know, some of my burden, if you can even call it that, is that, you know, within three weeks of Lyle passing, you know, me being, you know, what we call in the U.S. the gal Friday, right? The gal Friday is the worker bee, the person that does all the work that is, you know, organizing the collection, re restoring acetates, finding things, reuniting different collections, you know, uh, getting things in archival sleeves. The majority of Lyle's collection, you know, frankly, and there's many people out there who, if they were lucky enough to visit Ukiah and to visit the collection, they knew that that collection was not in a safe state of affairs. And I would always say, you know, tattoo history and some type of tattoo magic, man, did it, did it protect that collection, you know, um, from everything from flood, fire, uh, heat damage. Um, you know, there were many tattoo acetates that were found within two months after Lyle died that, you know, you're talking wearing a gas mask and meticulously going through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. You know, I will proudly say that, you know, I discovered and took care of and have protected hundreds of acetates by the great Brooklyn Joe Lieber and other artists that, you know, Lyle had collected so much, there was no way that he could safely manage all of it. And so part of the job back to the initial question was, you know, we were told that we had to basically move the entire collection within three weeks of Lyle passing. So, you know, you have to put aside that, you know, I lost my best friend, Lyle. I, yeah. So while you were still grieving, I, did, I didn't even get a chance to grieve until like a year ago through hypnosis. I mean, that's the truth of it, you know, to be really personally speaking, you know, and then when Lyle died, of course, as would happen with any famous person, you have anything that was on our website, people like scoffed it up. So then you're a person that is like, wow, I, I guess I have to pack like, you know, 300 things this week or whatever, you know. And so as far as the collection, it was an enormous, enormous task that, you know, happened with one or two extremely trusted friends, people Lyle trusted as far as like, how do we organize the collection? And, you know, things were then kept in very safe, professional art storage in San Francisco. And the goal this year certainly is I'm working on two public exhibits again. Um, and then another thing to keep in mind is that like La was so excited when we did the book that uh, we released for his 70th retrospective, because he was you know, he was understanding like, wow, I don't know how much time I have left. And, you know, it became a huge passion of mine in 2018 to make sure that we could celebrate him, celebrate the collection. You know, we brought a good part of the George Burchett collection into the Palace of Fine Arts. We had, you know. Yeah, and I, I saw the photos of that and was just so devastated that I couldn't couldn't be there yeah. in person. Well, I mean, it's just there's, incredible. There's a lot more to see, you know, and, you, and it was like we had his own personal yeah. retrospective you know, 70 years of his collecting, um, you know, a lot of the greats were there. Um, Ed Hardy came, of course, our, you know, Ed Lyle's neighbor and friend. And, 
He gave an amazing talk. Leo Zulueta and Mary Jane Hackey did talks. And, um, you know, Rambo, you know, your, your neighbor there, Paul, um, he came and did a talk. And, um, you know, little did we know that Lyle was going to pass six months later. But, you know, the ultimate goal was always that we had to figure out a way to safely house the collection and have at least a component for, you know, pop-up visits happening and, you know, worked on that, you know, through Lyle's cancer, then through my own breast cancer that happened, you know, within six months of Lyle passing, you know, this is life, right? So these are all the sort of real um, obligations and things people have to take care of. And, you know, the bottom line is that, um, you know, right now I'm just super excited to continue to do research and book projects. And, you know, we had to do the best we could, frankly, to, you know, meet the costs of maintaining the collection in San Francisco, where there was no proper housing for it in, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, where the tattoo shop was forced closed. You know, you had hundreds of thousands of people left the city of San Francisco, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. And that's a whole other socio-political discussion we could get into. But, you know, what San Francisco has become is very sadly not the not Lyle's San Francisco. Um, and so, you know, we're doing, uh, you know, I think I'm doing the best I can. I mean, plainly stated now. Well, you're doing, you're doing amazing, Danielle, honestly. Well like, Thanks. as I said, I, 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 I have not an entirely unique perspective, but I do have somewhat of a perspective on, you know, straddling these worlds of, of art history and curation and museology and private collections. I work a lot with private collectors. Yeah, I know it. Also work obviously within the industry, and it's like, you know, as I said, I did I do that on a in, on a much smaller and much less uh, uh, much less kind of you know impactful way that you do, and I just have so, I just really take my hat off to you for everything that you're well, doing because I, I, um, appre- I appreciate I, that you know Matt honestly you know Lyle would always say God you know like I believe in you I have faith in you and you know, he said to me, you're the only person who ever earned the job. You know, I would be up there working with him in Ukiah. I traveled with Lyle for over two years all over the world, um, you know, working and learning from him and doing a a small sort of feature in conventions where we would bring, you know, portions of his collection out on the road. And, you know, he knew that there was no, there was no faking it. You know, I was always, I was always interested in tattoo history. But mostly I was interested in Lyle's history because he was the mouthpiece for it all. He's the gatekeeper. He, you know, he certainly did, you know, and, and it's funny, I thinking about, you know, some of the videos that were done during the retrospective in 2018, you know, Ed said, you know, and he has a, a tremendous, tremendous legacy himself. You know, Ed Hardy said, you know, the, that Lyle was the most important ambassador for tattooing of the 20th century that what he did to popularize tattooing, you know, that, that will never be done again. I mean, you know, so it's, um, it, it's, it's a legacy I'm proud to protect, you know, but also I'm, you know, I'm still committed to making good on my word to Lyle, you know, um, as, as far as the personal, you know, the, the beauty of his collection too, and, and some of the things that feed into, you know, the publications, including, you know, we'll talk at least briefly today about the one we just put out, Lyle's correspondence. You know, he has an unbelievably important correspondence collection with, you know, thousands of letters to hundreds of different tattoo artists 
who he just wanted to learn from and he wanted to, you know, know about their histories and, you know, get to know them. And they, on some, on some people, he would correspond for like 10 to 15 years at a time. And, um, so there's a lot of knowledge in there and a lot of mysteries that, you know, you can fill in a lot of missing blanks through the correspondence. Yeah, those, those letters. Yeah. I mean, I, having, as I said to you the day, I was reading the letters that Ed Hardy put out between him and Jerry, where they, they talk quite a lot about Lyle Ed Ed saying how great he thinks Lyle is and how funny and, and Sailor Jerry, who's kind of grumpy and a bit dismissive of Lyle. So, but, but the letters, the, the letters are a, a, a different side of a human being, right? It's an intimate and personal thing, not for public consumption. And, um, it's a, you know, it, they can, they can be difficult to kind of, to, to deal with uh, letters of artists. My, my partner's a grandfather's, uh, sort of an artist who has some, some level of, um, popularity and fame and his private letters have been very difficult for the family to deal with because they're quite, you know, they're quite intimate as things, but they do fill in a different part of someone's life. I want to get on to the book as we finish up the Ralph Johnston book. But before I get onto that, I want to ask you one last question about the, about you dealing with the collection, which is like, again, knowing uh, what I do about tattoo history, that so much of that knowledge about where things come from and the stories behind them are in the individuals. They're not written down. Um, how are you navigating this now as you go through this vast collection and, and trying to kind of make sense of things that maybe um, only Lyle knew where they'd come from or, or, or where, they'd, where they'd fit in? What's, what's the kind of curatorial or you know, historical approach to that? Because, again, I, that's something that I find really fascinating when I'm dealing with collections. But it's, it's, it's also scary because we see, you know, so many great collectors are now, you know, we're, we're just sort of one one bad day away from losing loads and loads of information forever, yeah. I suppose, which is why I, so I tried my best. You know, we could, we could go on and on and I could say, God, I wish I, this, I wish I, that, but you know, I, I, my God, I, my life was really in a, in a very, um, obsessive way, kind of overrun with everything, <laughs> Lyle energy, Lyle Tuttle, you know, he, he just sort of, um, infiltrated every aspect of my life and work, <laughs> social travel, all of it. And, you know, there, there were plenty of things that I did take down, whether it was like, you know, oral histories that have been recorded with him, which there are many, there are many videos where he shared an awful lot on, you know, collecting his relationship with Bert Grimm. Um, and, you know, working with Lyle, you know, in what used to be the vault and the warehouse where the collection was kept, you know, I, I would ask him questions without trying to completely overwhelm him because there would be times when he would just shut down. He'd just say, kiddo, I can't stand it anymore. You know, it, it was like he needed to have his his downtime too from it. But, you know, I, I tried my best always to like strike a balance of like, God, I, I'd say, Lyle, you know, maybe we could just do an hour and then we'll sit and we'll have a little cocktail together because, you know, I knew that when he was gone, the information was gone. And luckily, you know, I always feel like, you know, in the times where there has been exhaustion and despair and you feel like, God, you know, my life is just it's completely overrun with everything, Lyle Tuttle, tattoo history, boxes, organizing, sorting, you know, he will come through the damn atmosphere and, you know, I will find something <laughs> like, and that actually happened with our latest book, not to segue into that, but you know, one or two photos that I had never seen before 
basically completed puzzle pieces such that, you know, I was able to bring the story of the artist R. Johnson much more out into the light. And I, and I sort of, I go into myself and I always ask myself, well, what is something that Lau would want me to do? How would Lau want me to share this information? And so, you know, in now doing, I guess this is the third publication I've done, you know, I, I thought it was important to share the story of R. Johnson because, you know, his artwork and his flash collection certainly, you know, is one of the most important and most beautiful in Lyle's collection. But there was never like, you know, the face put with the name put with the art. And there was a lot of conjecture. A lot of people think, well, there's, you know, Ralph John Stone, but then there's also this character, R. Johnson, who, you know, as far as American traditional flash and his artwork, you know, he's one of the, I would call him an underdog legend. You know, there's a lot of these underdog. Yeah, because you, you call the book, um, the book is called the, the Tattoo Art of Mystery Legend R. Johnson. Yeah. Right? So this is probably a good place to kind of, yeah, to start tying all these threads up. So, t- I mean, tell us about, about if, as much sure. as you can without spoiling it well, so people go and buy yeah, the book. Yeah, well, I mean. But, but what is the mystery yeah, of R. Well, Johnson? I mean, the mystery really was that, you know, just, just as I had said, like, you know, there was never, there were photos of a man named J.C. Johnson in Lyle's collection, um, many of them that were part of the Coble photos, you know, and Lyle has the entire Coble photo, uh, you know, collection. And so, you know, the, the flash was signed R. Johnson, R.J. Johnson in just a couple of cases. And so, you know, one letter basically from a Midwest artist who it turned out he had tattooed uh, R. Johnson, he shed a lot of light without giving away the whole mystery you know, on who R. Johnson was. And in Lyle's, you know, recounting to me where he had acquired this flash and that for sure he knew that he, that this R. Johnson had worked with uh, Ralph John Stone, you know, it, it sort of closed the gap between, you know, this, if this is R. Johnson, otherwise known as R.J.C. Johnson, there were two photos essentially in Lyle's collection that basically proved this flash was done by this person with this face, you know, who also was very important uh, figure in American uh, circus culture and circus history, as many tattoo artists were, you know, these characters were not making their living by, you know, having an Instagram account and, you know, books closed. It wasn't like that. You know, they were, they were hustling and they were doing whatever they could oftentimes having more than one, you know, cash cow for, for their survival. Yep. And so cutting hair, running, running bars, yep. all kinds of photography studios. You got all these it. Kind of yep. Things, right? Tam- taming snakes or, you know, JC Johnson actually was a strong man in the circus. And, you know, John Stone was a banner painter. And so, you know, there, I often think, my God, like, can't we just, you know, get back in a time machine and just be a fly on the wall to hear the conversations. But you know, what we can't do that, but what we can do is try to look a little bit deeper. Certainly Law's collection, as far as the correspondence, his travels, his photo collection, his business card collection, which is a force of nature. They're like little paper candies. And honestly, you know, um, the business cards were some of Lyle's favorite things in the collection. Um, you know, there has been an awful lot of maintenance and organization of this massive, massive collection, 
um, you know, that's happening week in and week out. And, you know, I certainly hope that the tattoo community, because there is not currently a place, you know, where they can see everything together in a public space, that they don't lose faith that that is going to happen. Um, so, you know, the publications, I hope, you know, sort of, you know, show people, okay, wow, there's good work being done. And certainly there will be public exhibits um, and, and pop-up exhibits that are in development right now. That's amazing. And I think the the books are so important. They're beautifully produced, the books that you've put out. And I, I haven't seen the, the R. Johnson one yet, but I'm sure it's of the same beautiful standard. And as you said, all, there, there are all these you know, behind those big figures like Lyle who were, and George Burchett and, and Les Skews and all the others who were out in the newspapers, there's a whole kind of other uh, set of tattooers who are, and, and the mystery is part of the beauty of it. Right. And, 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 um, and I remember speaking to, to Ed Hardy years ago, who, who'd been starting to publish things again with his flash, some of his flash collection. He said, look, things, you know, it's all well and good keeping stuff hidden away, but actually we need to put some of it out there because otherwise it disappears. It kind of, you know, when people, when individual tattooers die, individual collectors pass away, things get sold off, things get dispersed into the ether. And, um, there, there is a real, um, there's real value, as you said, not just for, for, for tattoo history, but for, but for the history of all of us to, to make some of this stuff accessible. And I, I know what a challenge and what a labor of love putting these books out are. Um, and they're beautiful and they're beautifully written and they're incredibly kind of, careful and thoughtful and um i'm just really grateful that you're doing it and and um you know thank you for being such a great custodian of of this amazing legacy and i i wonder like as a closing thought like whether you think coming to this not as a tattoo uh tattoo person or someone who'd been obsessed with tattooing for your whole life but having this kind of artistic and historical background does that make it do you think that's partly why lyle trusted you with it that he understood that your interest in this collection was wasn't born out of um you know fandom or, or or anything anything other than a real genuine deep interest like it seems to i mean that's that's the impression that i get i'm, Daniel, I'm not glad you today, i'm glad you from- asked that question you know there were many times where people that were lyle's closest friends would say you know he tells me he can't do the work without you he can't travel without you how much he trusts you you know, that you're the workhorse that he wishes he could have a six pack of you, you know, meaning like, and he would say, oh, where were you 25 years ago, kiddo, you know? And it's like, you know, the reason that Lyle started to respect, I think my work ethic certainly, you know, was because he saw me doing the work on this gilded console table. And I I remember one funny conversation where he'd, you know, he'd call me at night, I would be working in the basement and he would be up in his penthouse apartment and he'd say, kiddo, you're, you're still working down there, you know, and you're, it's, it's midnight. You're not doing any Coke. I'd say, no, Lyle, I'm not doing any Coke. I've, <laughs> I've never done Coke, buddy. You know, and he would bring me down like a little, like a little juice glass of like a tequila grapefruit as like our little reward, you know? And, um, I imagine gilding wouldn't go so well if you were on Coke, the whole pro- thing would be pro- covered in like, not. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that I, I know that I made an impression on him with the work ethic of that table through like a crippling hand injury and tendonitis. And, you know, when you travel with Lyle and you're bringing, you know, the, the day in a convention, especially having to protect and watch over, you know, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of flash that we were traveling with carrying in suitcases, putting up in these displays and stands, 
you know, talking till your horse in the throat because you have a lot of passion for his history. And, you know, you're, you're looking out for Lyle too, because my God, we were traveling, he was between 83 and 86 years old, you know, and he was still sort of like trying to charge through it. He, he was recovering from pneumonia. And so, you know, my, my dedication to his collection is always rooted in my dedication to Lyle, because I feel like he's still floating around somewhere. I mean, he's was the most important mentor of my life. And, you know, there, there was never this fan thing, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, the, I think the fact that I was not a tattooed person when I met Lyle and he was impressed with just me as the oldest of three kids, you know, always put taking care of the arts was always my, my passion. You know, nothing was changing there. It was just that the medium was changing. And so it stopped being gilding and fine furniture and, and picture frames. And it became taking care of, you know, his art, his art collection. And so, you know, God just damn the pandemic because I don't think people really can fathom that the timing of the pandemic, you know, coming in like a year almost to the day right after Lyle passed um, and in an ever-changing city that is San Francisco, you know, that that was like, my God, obstacles beyond. And I felt really proud that we were able to do at least a small exhibit in San Francisco with the Uncommon Valor book because people were not coming out into public spaces. And, you know, to a certain extent, I'm still, that's still sort of like, um, you know, um, a hurdle I have, but, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I'm really excited this year that we're getting back into it with publications. Um, another publication that's sort of on the list to do this year will be, um, I'll just, you know, hint at that will, it will have to do with the amazing collection that are the tattoo historians. And then later in the game, um, a book on the great Omi. So, um, you know, there, again, there's a lot of things that have been discovered in Lyle's collection, sort of one move at a time, one tub at a time, and just mind blowing discoveries that I'm, I'm happy to share. You know, there's, you know, it, it's. Yeah, I'm excited by that. I mean, I wrote, obviously, the, there's a chapter about Omi in my book and, you know, I sort of did a little bit on, on him, but it, it, in the bigger I story. I can't wait to get into I, your I think, book, uh, by the way, Matt, and thank you for sending and uh, Oh, I'm thank looking you. at it right now here no, on welcome. my coffee table. <laughs> so it's a well, my 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 um my very short sort of few thousand words on Omi, uh, putting him into that context is but a trifle, I think, compared to what you will be able to write and put out and the story you'll be able to tell with the information that you have. So I'm super excited for that and everything that you're doing. Um, where where can people where can people get get hold of the uh, the R Johnson book and keep up with with what sure. you're doing and 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 purchase stuff from you? What's the, the best way? The to best do, place to, to follow us. We have an Instagram account. Um, unfortunately, we were part of many people that got hacked a couple of years ago. So you know you you lose a bunch of followers. You learn to be more careful. Um, but now we are at Lyle Tuttle at Lyle Tuttle. And I, you know, do everything there from like share things on uh, latest publications, Lyle history, rare photos, uh, things from Lyle's collection. And the book is called The Tattoo Art of Mystery Legend R. Johnson. And there's, uh, you know, a, a click on link on our website. The website is www.lyletuttlecollection.com. 
and um, it's being super heavily promoted on Instagram right now. So if you follow us at Lyle.Tuttle, um, there's links to the website to, to, to get the book and, and all sorts of other stuff on the website too. 